Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you please open up your Bibles or look up on the electronic Bible on the wall as we read our scripture lesson this morning? which is in Genesis, we continue our study of the life of Abram, and this week we turn to Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 16. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterloamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedar but the thirteenth year they rebelled. <clears throat> In the fourteenth year, Kedarlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Sheveth Kiriathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites, who lived in Hazona. Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zeor, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. And they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and brother of Anner, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you know in the book of Hebrews, there's a section where the, well, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, which Stephen will assure you is not the Apostle Paul, um, that there's a section in there where the author is writing about Melchizedek. Do you remember that? And as he's writing about Melchizedek, he sees that the people he's writing to have their eyes are glazing over, 
and they're yawning, they're stifling yawns, they're bored, they're confused, they can't figure out what is being said about Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek is what I would refer to as an exotic figure in the Bible. You can't quite figure out where he came from, what his significance is, and he's part of the story here that we're reading. And next week, Stephen is going to be preaching on Melchizedek. Because the end of this story is that when Abram comes back, he tithes the spoils that he's gotten to Melchizedek, who is king of Salem. And so this is the setup to that account of the beginning of that, that, that aspect of worship, which is namely tithing. This was something that they did at the time. And this is a very interesting story because a number of things happen here that are sort of out of the ordinary. One of the things is this is the first mention anywhere in Scripture of a war. This is the first time there's a war. It says in verse 2 that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Now, the setup is that there were city kings at the time all across the Mideast. So you had a city, and then outside of the city, you had people who lived out in, you know, they were farmers, they were herdsmen, and they had an orientation to the city. They'd go to market in the city. If there was an enemy that attacked, they'd go inside the walls of the city, and that would give them some protection. It's a lot like the Middle Ages, medieval time. And so there were a bunch of kings... And there were kings in the east who had attacked these areas in the past, over the Babylonian area, and they had brought them into subjection. So it's like Israel was at the time of our Lord, in the time of Christ, where it was under the authority of the Roman Empire. And so all these kings in the area that Abram and Lot are living at this time, all the kings of the local cities and the surrounding territories are in subjection to these four kings in the east. Now, it's not clear from the text whether they have paid their tribute. And, and, and of course, you all live in subjection to Washington, D.C., right? Right? We all live in subjection to Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C., like these kings, requires an annual tribute. And so every April 15th, you send a whole pile of your money to the belt, inside the beltway in Washington, D.C., because Washington, D.C., in the Civil War, uh, took captive the whole country. Uh, half of you like that accounting, and half of you don't like that accounting, and Tim from Australia has no idea what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> okay. Well, it depends on whether you live in the North and South as to whether or not you think that the Civil War was... Washington taking captive the United States of America, right? But we all realize that, that the right of secession of the southern states and the northern states was ended with the Civil War. And so from now on, all of us have to pay tribute to Washington, D.C. And you can imagine that if some stupid county treasurer somewhere, typically in the south, were to decide that from now on, the people in their county, we're not going to send tribute to Washington, D.C. You can imagine what would happen. You know, Washington, D.C. would send military force down, and they would force everybody in that county to stop being rebels against the national tribute. Right? That's why you all pay taxes. Right? So this is basically what happened. These guys in the East had taken 
This is part of their territory, and they demanded an annual tribute. And at some point in this time of being a part of these, um, this empire, these four kings, they decided, we're done with that. We are not going to send any money to them anymore. And so what happened then was that the kings that had been receiving the tribute said, oh, okay, we've got to go back there and teach them a lesson again. And so they got on their horses or their camels or whatever, and they got their armies and they said, we're going back there so that we continue to receive our tribute every April 15th. Don't worry, I'm just kidding. Sort of. So... They get on the horses, and as they go across the territories, they bring every place they go into in subjection. It's very clear that nobody is able to put up a fight against them. It says, verse 2, they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemabar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Now, a couple comments about the names, because it's important for the sake of what, what else we're going to study. If you look in verse 2 and you see the name of the king of Sodom and the name of the king of Gomorrah, and you know that the two cities that God wiped out completely with fire and brimstone are what? Sodom and Gomorrah. It's interesting that those names of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah literally mean the king of Sodom whose name is Bera, the name means evil. And then the king of Gomorrah, his name is Bersha, and that name means wicked. Last week, after studying Lot's choice of going over into the land that's the territory of Sodom, somebody said to me, well, do you think he knew how wicked the city was? The answer is yes. It was so wicked that the name of the king and the name of the character of the people were one and the same. And so Sodom, their king was evil. Gomorrah, their king was wicked. And this is a lot like what we have today where as the king is, so the people is or are. And so Gomorrah has a king named wicked. Sodom has a king named evil. And we think today of, for instance, Harvey Milk and, come on, San Francisco. All right, we think of uh, Donald Trump and Alabama. <laughs> no, Donald Trump in New York City, right? We think of Rahm Emanuel and Chicago. We think of Jerry Brown and California, right? Mugabe and Zimbabwe, and Zuma, and South Africa. And immediately, you begin to feel the character of every one of those places. Jerry Brown is the perfect expression of California, right? And he has been for years. And sadly, uh, this was an accurate description of Sodom and Gomorrah, that the kings were called evil and wicked. So, verse 3, all these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. So what happens is the four kings from the east come west, and everything sets up in the valley of the Salt Sea, or today we call it the Dead Sea. 
The Dead Sea is a very salty place. Its salt content is 10 times the content of the oceans. The oceans are 3%. This is 30%. Even the skinniest person here will bob up out of the water. That's how thick the salt is down there. And it takes the character of the area. And this is the place where these kings who are in rebellion set up to continue the rebellion. The battleground is the valley south of the salt or the Dead Sea. Verse 4, 12 years they had served Kedar but the 13th year they rebelled. And it's not clear from the Hebrew whether they were rebelling all 12 years and refusing to pay and finally the king said, all right, that's it. Or whether they had paid 12 and then the 13th they rebelled so that the battle was in the 14th year. Anyhow, the 14th year, the campaign of the four kings of the east to bring them back into subjection, submission, and to pay their annual taxes or tributes is commanded, commenced. The battle commenced. In the 14th year, Keter Loamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth. So, in other words, as they worked their way over to this valley south of the Dead Sea, they were able to win in battle against each of these areas they went through. And then they came to this area. And we read, And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zorah, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim. So here it is. It's four kings of the east against five kings of the west. The numbers are four against five. And the fact that these five kings of the West assembled against the four kings of the East indicates that the kings of the West were not backing down in their rebellion. They weren't going and hiding in the wilderness. They weren't hiding in their cities. They were firm in their rebellion. So here's the question. How did the rebellion go for them? How did it work out? Five against four? Well, the battle is summarized in verse 10. And here's how it's summarized. It says, Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. And that's the battle. <laughs> so it didn't go well for them, did it? It was disastrous. It doesn't tell anything about how, you know, the battle of Shiloh and the battle here, the battle there, and then the battle of Gettysburg. All you get told is that they fell into the tar pits. <laughs> you know, that's the highest dignity they get, that at some point they were standing out of the tar pits and then they fell into them, all right? And then it says, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they fell into them, but those who survived fled to the hill country. Nothing said about the battle, and so it had to have been a complete rout, because all it said is that the rebel kings ran, that they fell into pits, that they fled, that they turned tail, they retreated, they hid, and they made for the hills. Now, the area south of the Dead Sea has a, has a whole bunch of uh, tar or bitumen pits. And all across the Middle East, there are a lot of places where petroleum rises to the surface and creates these pits. All right? And so this is what is spoken of here when we read that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah ran for their lives and fell into these pits. Following the defeat of the rebel kings, then the four kings of the east did what you do when you win a battle, which is you go and plunder the city. So they went and they plundered the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, verse 11, then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. 
Now, what of Abram's nephew Lot? You remember from last week that when Lot and Abram's servants, the herdsmen, didn't have enough land for them to graze on, and they, were, they started fighting, that Abram gave Lot the choice of where he was going to go to live, and Lot looked out, and what did he see? You remember? Lot looked out, and he saw the rich, wealthy, beautiful, well-watered, green, and it makes an allusion to the Garden of Eden, which was perfection. And he said, that's where I'm going to be. So Abram was his sort of adoptive father. His dad had died. Abram gives him the dignity of the first choice, and he chooses the beautiful land. And the beautiful land is over by Sodom. Now, what does it say once he chose that land? Listen carefully. It says in Genesis 13, last week's text, that Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, a reference to the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So remember last week we said that Egypt was fertile because of the Nile. It was green. Any of you ever lived in California ever? Well, if you've lived in California and you come back to the Midwest, what hits you? It's unbelievable. I'll never forget it. After being in San Diego where every day is perfect, right? You come back to the Midwest where every day isn't perfect. You know, you have humidity in the summer, you have cold, you have all kinds of climate other than Mediterranean, but you come back to the Midwest and it's mind-boggling. What? Green. It's unbelievably fertile. It's beautiful. And so this is what Lot is looking at. And he has cattle. And he chooses, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, which is, uh, which is watered by the Nile. And so he chose, verse 11, for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and thus they separated from each other, Lot and Abram. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley. Now you notice that that's plural, right? The cities of the valley. And moved his tent as far as Sodom. And then it says, now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So what you have here is you have Lot looking out, seeing the beautiful, wealthy, and you remember in the, in the book of Ezekiel, it says that the sin of the, of, of the people, of the men and the women of Sodom and Gomorrah is the sin of wealth and luxury and pride. And you know that because people who are arguing that homosexuality is good today say that sodomy is not the sin of two members of the same sex having union, but rather it's the sin of what? It's the sin of pride and luxury and wealth. That's what they say, because Ezekiel says it. But the reason Ezekiel says that is that the sexual sin of sodomy is a subordinate sin to the sin of luxury and wealth and pride. And nobody ever gets this. That when you have a decadent nation like the Roman Empire, like ancient Greece, like America today, we're so wealthy and we're so sophisticated and so proud in our luxury and sophistication and wealth, so proud of our aesthetics. Are you with me? You know what aesthetics are. The unbelievably important 
ability to determine whether you're hip or not. The unbelievable ability to dress in a vain way as a man, in such a way as to impress other people with your sartorial taste. Are you with me? Or, or are you so unhip that you don't know what the meaning of sartorial is? It's how you dress. And you think about how, with luxury, with wealth, and with pride, what happens? Well, we all know what happens. The more wealth and luxury and pride we get, the more important what? The more important art becomes. The more important it is for you to identify yourself by what movies and videos you like and don't like, by what the graphics are that you put up on Facebook, by the clothing that you wear. I mean, do you really think that farmers in Wisconsin... <laughs> the farmers I used to pastor, do you really think they're making statements with their clothes? No. You know, farmers don't make statements with their clothes, right? That's left to people that live in cities who have so much wealth that they have to figure out how to spend it. And one excellent way to spend wealth is by spending $5,000 on a pair of eyeglass frames. And then $50,000 on a gold watch. And then a Lexus. Or if you're really sophisticated, you'll buy, well, I won't get into it. But you, you, you see, every single thing in a luxurious country with lots of wealth and pride becomes a matter of taste. Do you see this? And with taste comes homosexuality. Come on, people, don't act like you're dumb. I know the culture, and the fact is, this is the nature of decadence. Decadence lifts the artists up into the place that the priests used to occupy. The artists are the high priests of wealthy cultures. Okay? Read the history, Gibbons, on the history of the Roman Empire. It's just, everybody knows this who's a historian. And so what you have here is you have a city whose name of the king is what? evil, and the name of Gomorrah's king is, is wicked, the places are wicked, Lot looks out and he sees the abundance, he sees the luxury, he sees the wealth, he sees the green, he sees that if he goes there, he will be what? Poor? No, he'll be rich. He knows that his animals will feed better than his uncle's animals when he chooses that territory, and that is wealth in the ancient world. It's your, it's your animals. And so he goes there, but at the beginning, he pitches his tent near Sodom, but it says he chose the area of these cities. But now look at what it says this week. In verse 12, what does it say? Hmm? A little bit of a change here. Do you see it? It says... They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was what? It says he was living in Sodom. We're not dealing with tents here anymore, are we? He has made the transition now into Sodom as a permanent resident, and he is, he is living in the midst of Sodom. Now, listen, Scripture is always profitable. There is not a heedless or needless word in God's 
Revelation. It says in Scripture that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And so it's profitable that Scripture changes it from him living in a tent among the cities over by Sodom, and then it's saying he lived in Sodom. Now, what was Abram's life, I mean not Abram's, what was Lot's life like in Sodom? Well, we have an account in the New Testament that shows us. And if you have a Bible, turn there with me to to the book of 2 Peter. Because 2 Peter gives us a description of Lot living in Sodom. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, we read this. Speaking of God, and if he rescued righteous, what? If he rescued righteous Lot, and then it says this about Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So what we see here is he lived among them, and that he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and what he saw and heard while living among them, he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Okay, so how do we understand this? We see that Lot chooses to live there, then he moves inside the city, he's a permanent resident, right? And then we hear that his soul is righteous and he's tormented by their lawless deeds. And and anybody who thinks about it for a moment has this question going through their mind. How can Scripture call him a righteous man? He's the one that's chosen to go by the wickedness. He's the one that's chosen to live inside the city of Sodom. Why does the New Testament call him a righteous man? Right? Right? Well, all you have to do to understand this is look at yourself. You live in Bloomington. And Bloomington is a city of incredible wickedness. Starting with uh, the Kinsey Institute. It's unbelievable. It's one of the most wicked things America's ever done is just turn little children over to that wicked man and they become the source of his study that's released, right? It was so wicked when that study was released. We don't remember this because we're too young. But it was so wicked that a well-known pagan woman, (laughs) Margaret Mead, any of you heard of Margaret Mead? She wrote this statement about the wickedness of Kinsey and the Kinsey Report. And she wasn't a believer at all. And she said, this report is so awful because it separates the biology of physical intimacy from the relational aspect. And she said, it's going to bring us to the point. She said, an awful lot of our morality depends upon people not knowing what other people do. And she said, this is leaving no stone unturned. And she said, it's going to bring us to the point where we don't know why we have sex with people instead of animals. And this is our city, right? You live here, I live here, right? And then we have Baby Doe. 
1982, Baby Doe was a little baby that was born with an esophageal blockage. And Baby Doe was born to parents who, whether the parents or their pediatrician, decided that they would starve Baby Doe to death. And so they did not open the blockage. Why? Well, because Baby Doe was uh, handicapped. And so that little baby sat up in the, our hospital here in this community and cried until it died. The nurses couldn't bear it. There were 50, 50 offers from around the country to adopt that little baby that came in to see Everett Coop. He told me this because he's a family friend. He said, as Surgeon General, he got 50 offers to adopt that child, and the courts would not allow that child to live. And this is Bloomington. It was the most famous baby doe case in the world. A lot of us have forgotten it. Linda has lived here her whole life. She's shaking her head. She's saying, no, I haven't forgotten it. And so we have Kinsey. We have Baby Doe. And then if you went down 4th Street Festival last week, any of you go down to the festival last week? We went down. And I took a picture of Jurgen. He's, 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 he's squatting down in front of one of our statues of idols. You know those brains all over the place? We don't think of them as being idols. They're just brains. But what does Bloomington worship? The intellect. But we're so sophisticated that we explain to ourselves that all those statues of brains aren't religiously significant. But can you describe to me how many people in this community have given up their faith in God for the sake of their intellect? Some of you have been in that zone, right? Where you feel you have to choose between reason and logic or ideology and God. And so I have a picture of Jürgen squatting underneath it with his head under the brain. You know? <laughs> if you want to see it, I think I have it on... I think I have it here. Maybe we could... Mary Lee took the picture. So why are you in Bloomington? Well, most people who come to Bloomington come to Bloomington because of its wealth. What is its wealth? There's no wealth in the Western world that in any way competes with the wealth of the academy. You read anything about the endowments of Harvard and Princeton, Yale? Unbelievable. What is the fanciest building where no expense was spared? I watched it go up. It's the IU Foundation on Bypass. There's no building close to that building in competition, and that's the building that brings in all the donations to Indiana University. And so you came here probably for the wealth of the university, right? And so you looked out and you saw Indiana University and you made a decision to yourself, that's a place where I can get a good living. I can get a degree that makes me able to earn a good living or I can teach there, I can be a professor there, I can practice law, I can practice medicine. Or I can just be an interloper who runs the network in the registrar's office, Wayne Huck, you know. <laughs> and even the, the man that runs... The computers, the registrar's office is well paid in Bloomington. 
right? Even the parking garages at IU make me envious. <laughs> Atwater, you see that parking garage? And I think, could we have just a tithe on the exterior limestone of that just to help with our little building? Have you looked at that and, and just in wonderment, it's just the most drop-dead gorgeous parking garage I've ever seen in my life. And so we look at Lot, and we see the New Testament calling him righteous Lot, and we look at ourselves, and we look at living cheek by jowl right next to wickedness, right? Now let me ask you a question, why was Lot captured? You ever thought about this? Well, the reason Lot was captured was that God disciplined his son. He disciplined him. Do you look at the things that come to your life as coming from God, or do you think that God is unaware of you? You know that the Bible says he notices when a sparrow falls. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. And so if you're taken into captivity, do you think that God knows that? And do you think you being taken into captivity is God's kindness to you, or are you just impatient and resentful to God? What do you think Lot's response was to being taken into captivity? Do you think Lot had faith that that was God's loving, fatherly discipline? of him. That here Lot had decided he was going to have the good life and that he would abstain from the wickedness. So he gnashed his teeth at the wickedness and he preached against the wickedness and then lived in the middle of it and went out to the nice restaurants. He was a foodie, you know, and he had just beautiful hair to kill for and his sartorial taste And he could go over to the Lilly Library and look at a Gutenberg Bible and a Coverdale Bible, and, and he could go to plays. And if he was pathetic, he went to operas. Sorry, Don. So, sorry, Bob. How many, how many operas does Bob have in his library? David? Wagner, how many do you think? How many? Dawn? How many? Somebody has to have counted them. Three or four thousand. Is that right, Bob? What did he say, Clay? I'll bet it's more than that. And he said, yeah, to not have to cop to anything worse. <laughs> He's probably calling me names now, and I know what name he's calling me. <laughs> Listen, this is our lives, people. This is our lives. Have you ever felt happy and then felt guilty about it that you live in the midst of wickedness? Do you understand what I'm saying? 
where you can take the benefit of the wickedness but have plausible deniability because you rebuke it on your blog or you rebuke it in your Facebook page. And yet there is a certain benefit. You know, there is a certain... I mean, don't you feel proud to live in Bloomington? I mean, don't you feel superior when you drive to Martinsville? Come on, be honest with me. And you don't even think about Brazil. Owen County, it's like, oh man, those poor suckers, you know, out there in Owen and Green County. I mean, they have lower taxes and that's all. <laughs> but let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about where you live being a confession of faith? You ever thought about that? We have a tendency, because we live in a transient society, to just look at where we live as a function of job, you know, where we get hired, where our parents live. We don't think of it as a confession of faith. But listen, this whole story is told in a way that shows that it was a confession of Lot's faith and his sin where he lived. There's no question about that. And so here God comes along, and it's interesting that Lot is not out there with the other kings fighting. That's interesting. He stayed back in the city, so his identity with them was not so close that he was out there fighting. So when they came back to take captives, Lot was in the city, right? He hadn't fought. But then Lot is taken captive. Now think about this. Lot, his possessions and wealth... And the greatest treasure Lot had, which was what? Don't ever buy the lie that people tell you about people in the ancient world and their relationship with their wives and their daughters and their mothers. The last thing it says is his women. And every man will die to protect his women. That's the essence of manhood. And Lot is reduced to having his women taken captive. And he can't escape it. He didn't die with the dignity on the battlefield of protecting them. There Lot is, as his women are reduced to being captives of these wicked kings from the east. Now how do you think Lot felt? This was God's discipline. Why? Well, because Lot loved the good things of life. True, he was righteous. He gnashed his teeth. It tormented him, and he chose it, and he moved into the middle of it. Do you see this? One of the things that I find myself thinking and wanting to say constantly to people as a pastor here in Bloomington at this church is have you found a good church there? And typically it's people who are moving because of a job or because of something to some city out there in the hinterland of America and they're excited about their new job prospects and the reason they're excited is because they have put first things first and have found a church that they think will help them honor God and will discipline them so they honor God, 
right? But you know I'm kidding you. I've never had anybody say that to me. I've never had anybody tell me that they're moving, you know, out to Kansas or down to Texas or anywhere these people move because there's a godly church and they know that they will continue to grow in the Lord because of where they're going to live. It's always money. There's a job. So how much are they getting paid to move halfway? And the sad thing is that these people who have gotten doctorates, unless they've gotten a doctorate in... I don't know, what's the best paid doctorate in the academy today? Biochemistry? Jared? Where's Jared? (laughs) No, okay, not biochemistry. What's the best paid doctorate today? Would it be the business school? Finance, finance. There's somebody here. Yeah, you're studying finance. And you have nice eyeglass frames. Come on, love me. You'll love me, right? You'll love me. Okay, all right, okay, all right. But how about the poor, poor PhD, freshly minted PhD, who's going out to teach history? I mean, that's pathetic. And the reason is they're not going to get any money. And so why do they move? They could earn more money driving a taxi in Bloomington. What I want you to see is that if we're going to study this account, and if Scripture tells us that he was righteous, it tells us he gnashed his teeth in in the wickedness of Sodom, and it tells us he chose to live there, and it tells us he then moved into the city, and then it tells us he's taken captive. What we have to see here is that God is disciplining Lot. Why? For where he chose to live and because he loved luxury. That's what Ezekiel says. Luxury, wealth, pride. And so God takes away all his security, all his luxury, all his wealth, and all his pride. He is reduced to being a captive watching his women, his wife, his daughters, his children being the captives of kings from Babylon. Now, I want you to think about your life. Many of you have something right now in your life that you just really don't like. Right? You don't like it. And, I, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you about a day in my life so that you can identify with this. When we moved to Partyville, and it wasn't dignified, I had two choices of places to live, and neither one of them was dignified. One was called Coal Strip, right? And the other was called Partyville. You ever give your address when you live in Partyville on the phone to anybody and there's Snickers <laughs> and they're not chocolate. So I would always, the best defense is a good offense, I'd always say, yeah, yeah, I'm pastor of Our Lady of the Perpetual Good Time, Partyville, Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> 
And this church had a tiny little house. And when we first saw it, it had a huge anthill of sand right outside the door. And the carpet was, shall we just say, nobody from Sodom would ever choose that carpet. It didn't match my eyeglasses. It was hideous. What color was it, Mary Lee? Green? Was it green? Well, whatever it was, it was hideous. I'm colorblind, so it's green. But even the shape of it was horrible. Yeah, it was just awful. And the basement had, it was wonderful, the basement. I mean, this thing was like it would fit into that corner of here, the whole house. But it did have a basement, which was wonderful. But when you went in the basement, it did have a bathroom, which was wonderful. But all it had was studs around the bathroom. No wallboard, no drywall, just studs. So you could go down and use the bathroom in the basement if you wanted, you know. <laughs> Feel free, you know. And so the first thing Mary Lee and I did is we said, would you mind if we would buy ourselves a house in Partyville? And the search committee said, no, you may not buy a house in Partyville. You will use our house. Why? Well, because it's a way that a church saves money. And then I thought, well, whenever I leave Partyville, I'm not going to have any equity. Because the pay was awful. <laughs> I mean, really bad. But you realize that you want to serve God, and so you do what you're told to do. And so we moved in there. We were happy. We raised our family in this home. And then when we left, at 40, I had no money. And we were moving to Bloomington. Do you see? You see? And the Bloomington church didn't have a manse. So then I went through the indignity of the people at that church in Bloomington putting together a down payment for me, but I would owe it to them. And they weren't paying me real well. They paid me much better than Partyville. And so now I had a double mortgage. I had a mortgage on a house I had to buy, and then I had a mortgage to a bunch of the rich people in the community, in, in the church. And very soon it was clear to me those rich people hated me. <laughs> and so at the end of the first year, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? The people that hold my debt are people that wish I was gone. And that's the best construction to put on it. <laughs> Capital G, gone. And so then I had to pay them off, and then I thought, I don't want them to have loaned me this much money without any interest, and so I took the prevailing interest rate and paid them back. And you know, the sweetness was, I think, I can't remember how much, but a good portion of that money, when I went to pay it off, they said, no, this is a gift. Now, think about the indignity of being a pastor, having to live in a house that's smaller than you need, uglier than you want, getting no equity from it, and then I didn't get paid hardly anything, right? And I remember going down to my friend Kurt Coddington's. He owned the True Value store in town, and he and I were thick as thieves. He went to the Baptist church, and we ran a community youth group together, and he was my best bud. I went back into, the, into, the, into his uh, sort of office, and I sat down, and I was furious. What was I furious about? I was furious about how much I got paid. It's true. Now, how do you like hearing that about a pastor? It's pretty disgusting, isn't it? I thought you were serving the Lord, Tim. 
And so Kurt asked me what was wrong, and I said, well, I just don't think my church is fair to me financially, right? And you know, Kurt added pain to pain. Because you know what he said to me this, 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 you know, what would you call him? This superficial, God-talk, optimistic flake. He looks at me and gives me a big grin, and he says, well, just trust God. And that made me angrier. Right? Why? Why was I angrier? The reason I was angrier is the one thing I didn't do was, I didn't want to do was what? I did not want to trust God. Now, why is that, that a Christian would be angry about somebody telling him to trust God? That's who we are. We live by faith, we gnash our teeth at the wickedness, and we don't want to trust God. We live by faith, we gnash our teeth at the wickedness, and we get angry when our best bud tells us to trust God. Because we see down the road and we know that trusting God now means that if we ever move, we're going to have no down payment. And then we'll have to do what? It's so humiliating. What will we have to do? We'll have to trust God again. And who in the right mind wants to trust God? That's the whole point of being an American. It's the whole point of getting a degree. It's the whole point of getting tenure. It's the whole point of owning the business. It's the whole point of living in Owen County. You don't have to trust God. Come on. Come on. Tell me I'm right. Come on. I hope as a church that we love each other so much that we see ourselves accurately. That day by day, year by year, the preaching from our pulpit, from our pastors, the teaching we get from the older women and the elders and the deacons of this church, I hope it constantly opens our hearts up to ourselves so that we see who and what we are. And so I left that back room of the True Value store that day angry. I, I, I'm telling you the truth. I was angry both at God and the church, and I was now angry at my best bud, Kirk Coddington. And I went back to the church, and I sat in my office, and I was angry in my office. And it was a lot like when I used to hitchhike. And I would get an entitlement mentality about rides. I kid you not. I'd sit there by the side of the road, and if I had spent an approximately reasonable amount of time with my thumb out, I got to the point where I thought, I deserve a ride now. I put in my time, and I'd start having an adversarial relationship with the people driving by me. <laughs> you know, they didn't know it. <laughs> but, you know, I'd start getting angry at that car, angry at that car, angry at that car. And I noticed that when I got in that adversarial entitlement mentality, that I would never, ever, ever get a ride. Never. 
It, I, I hitchhiked across the country many times, and I'm telling you, I have it down to a science. I could take you out with me now, and you could, I could have you video, and I'd show you the attitude posture. And the funny thing is, I wasn't talking to them, but I was absolutely communicating to them my aggression and anger. And guess what? People won't pick up a hitchhiker when he's aggressive and angry. <laughs> Even if he doesn't say anything to you. And then I would think to myself, what? I would think, I'm here asking people to be generous. I don't have a right to a ride. And I would always be aware that God was the one that was deciding about me getting a ride. Because I'd been raised in a home that taught me that everything, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, falling down from the Father of the heavenly lights. And so then, I would be humbled. And I would look at them and ask them, would you please pity me? And guess what? Just like that, I'd get it right. I kid you not, I've been through this time after time, and I went back to that office and I sat there angry at God that I had to depend on my people, that I had to depend on him, and that this would probably keep going on in my life. You know, why? Well, you know why. Why? <laughs> you know why? Because God loves me. Because God loves me. God disciplines those he loves. There's nothing that comes to your life that doesn't pass through the hand of your heavenly Father. Nothing. Not that dingbat at the roundabout who thinks you have to stop when it says yield. And I don't mean to insult those of you who stop at the yield sign, but here's a clue. It's yield, <laughs> okay? I just had to get that in. Okay, but you know, you think about how people irritate you when you drive, and what happens is you get angry. Somebody's going 49 in a 50, and they should be going 52. I mean, honestly, people, the, the, this is our lives, okay? It's the person that, after they've bought all the lottery tickets and cigarettes, then remembers that they also want who knows what. <laughs> and it takes forever, and what's with the people that own that store that they don't have two of the four cash registers running? And it, do you think that this is God teaching you patience? You say, oh, no, God waits and takes me into captivity. He, he does big things, not little things like how many people are in the line and how many people are running the cash registers, right? And then you look at the fact that this year is the year that none of the peppers and none of the squash worked out. And your raspberry bushes are wilting and dying. And you think, well, this is the year of such and such. And we had the such and such weather and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And so this isn't God, but it sure is irritating. And then you look at your irritation and you think, huh, that's good. That's the thing academics don't have. They don't have weather, but farmers have weather, so farmers are humble and academics aren't. 
because the weather humbles the farmer. Do you think about everything that comes to your life? Everything is coming from your Heavenly Father. Everything. How long it takes to go through checkout. Who's driving in front of you? Now, I'm going to keep going. Is God the one that decides whether or not you got fired? Is God the one that caught you when they found you using pornography where you work and you got fired? And was it God's kindness that you got caught using pornography and got fired? Come on. God's the one that's made you poor. Why do you think you're poor? Well, you're poor because God knows he can't trust you with riches. And is that God's kindness or does it make you angry like me? God's the one that gave you the physical defect that you think everybody stares at every time you go out in public. God's the one that made you skinny, fat, short, tall. God's the one that made you blind. And is that God's kindness to you? And you say, well, you know, my dad always used to say this. My dad always used to say, well, that's easy for you to say. Well, isn't that what a preacher's supposed to do? He's supposed to say the things that everybody who's cynical will respond by saying, well, that's easy for you to say. It's not easy for me to say. I identify with you. I love you. I know what you suffer. That's why I'm saying this. Are you going to look at the circumstances of your life down to the most tiny thing up to the most awful thing? Awful. And are you going to say, that is my Heavenly Father's kindness to me? And you know that what I'm really saying is, do you or do you not live by faith? And the one that you just said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And do you trust his discipline? Huh? Huh? Now see... Now you're, you, you know what I was feeling towards Kurt that day. <laughs> Where he told me to trust God, and I'm telling you to trust God, and some of you aren't real happy with me right now. But listen, I went back to that office, and I had my pity party. I had my rebellion. I had my self-will. I had my judgment of, harsh judgment of my congregations. And then... I said to God, I give up. I give up. It's your will. It's not mine. I trust you. Okay? And you know, God is kind. He disciplines us, but look what happens. <laughs> you know? I wish I could play a trumpet right now. <laughs> you know? Be a fanfare. Uprides. Abram. And Abram whoops him. 
right? Just about the time that, that Lot had gone from an entitlement victim mentality to a meek and humble and godly mentality. Here, in other words, the discipline had done its work and uprights Abram. Now, we don't know that that's what happened, but you have to assume that's what happened. That by the time Abram showed up, Lot wasn't sitting there with an attitude. He was just plain happy, <laughs> you know, because he got his dog back, he got his pickup back, and he got his wife back. <laughs> That's what happens when you play a country song backwards, right? <laughs> and so Abram comes, and he attacks him with just 300 people. You know, how did he do it? Well, he came at night, just like Gideon. And he came at him from two sides, and it was dark. And they had probably, they were completely sated. Do you know the word sated? They were, they were drunk up, fed up, and soporific. They were out like a light. And Abram comes up, he whoops up on him, and he saves Lot. And he saves Lot's wealth, and he saves the most precious things to Lot, which are, again, what? His women. His his precious wife, his precious mother, his precious aunt, his precious daughters. And you say, we well, didn't have daughters. And I say, whatever his women were, but he did have daughters. I, I got confused thinking of Abram there for a second, right? Okay, so that's the application this week. Whatever it is that you don't like in your life, would you please live by faith? Would you please trust that this is God's gift to you and that it's his kindness? And would you please think about where you live? Is where you live a choice that you think will help your godliness? Or is it just because where you live is your idolatry? It's where your, it's where your cows feed well. It's where your barns can have lots of hay. It's where you can get tenure. It's where, you know, a part of the country that has a better political climate. It's whatever your wealth is. Think about where you live. That's clearly an application here, okay? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will continue through your word to convict us of sin and of faithlessness so that we will keep coming to you and coming to you and coming to you and coming to you admitting that once again we have needed your correction and your exhortation and your rebuke. And we pray this week that you will help us to repent of not living by faith and not believing the difficult things or your kindness to us. We thank you for this account of Lot and for the kindness that you showed him in sending Abram to rescue him and his women and his wealth. And we pray, Father, that not just us, but all your people around the world will return to you and will not choose the wealth and luxury and pride of the wicked, but will walk on the straight and narrow path with only eyes for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.